one, and we're seeing what Jesus' family teaches us about the family of God. Matthew chapter 1, we started off uh, the first week by being introduced to Jesus and who he is. Last week, we saw where really the beginning of Israel's story starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then today, we are in verse 3, where it says that Judas, or Judah begat, he was the father of Perez and Zerah of Tamar. So today, we're going to talk about Judah, Perez, and Tamar in the family of Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Father, thank you for today and for your goodness to us, and thank you for the freedom that is found in Christ. Thank you that we can come to you just as we are. Uh, we don't have to. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to put on some external uh, means of looking the part. We don't have to look religious. Um, we come to you as you as we are, and you accept us. Uh, you love us, and then you change us into who you want us to be. Amen. And we thank you that we can come to you this morning. And thank you for the freedom that is found in Christ because of the gospel because jesus loved us that he gave himself for us and today as we consider uh your family tree and what that means for our lives i ask that you'd stir our hearts help me to say what you want me to say nothing more nothing less and lord i pray that you uh bless every person who's here today with your word i ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and that we would leave this room today loving you more because we understand the gospel more deeply and loving like you in our uh, in our family and in our workplace and in our community. And Lord, we pray that you just change lives through the power of your word. Thank you for it and the opportunity that we have to study it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Earlier this week, I took my daughter, Brooklyn, for her annual doctor's checkup. And you can say that I'm a bad, you can say I'm a bad parent. Like, parents, give me some advice after the service. But here's what I did. Um, I got ready, I got Brooklyn in the car, and all of my kids, they hate going to the doctor because they hate the prospect of getting shots. So I loaded up my three-year-old Brooklyn, and we were going on a date. We were going to go to Chick-fil-A, which is true. We were on our way to Chick-fil-A, but before we got to Chick-fil-A, we had to make a little pit stop. And we made a pit stop at the doctor's office. We went in, and she was just, she was absolutely perfect. And to be honest, I was really, really excited when we got there because if you've seen my kids you know my daughter julianne she's five she is she is she looks just like adriana but she's tall and she's very very petite and she's just got those long she's got long slender fingers they call them piano playing fingers in my family and that's my daughter julianne and then if, you see, if you've seen my son witten Witten, he we took him to the doctor adriana took him to the doctor on friday i think he measured in the 96th was that right 96th percentile for height which means that he is taller than 96 percent of the kids his age and he's thick like he just he walks around like he's gonna like he's gonna just go straight through a wall and i'm still waiting for that to happen in my house and then there's my daughter brooklyn in the middle and brooklyn um, she's always seemed in comparison she's always just seemed uh, a lot shorter and she's got like the cutest little tiny chunky fingers and she's just as cute as she can be but then whenever they they measured her she actually measured in the 76th percentile for height so i was like uh, she is shorter in comparison but like uh she's not going to be like like my mother who's four foot eleven uh so i was really excited about that so we're, we're going through she's doing a great job 
She's answering all the questions, and then uh, the doctor comes in, goes through all the questions, goes, uh, listens to her heart, listens to her breathing, and then they ask me if I had any questions. And one of the questions that I had was, well, whenever Brooklyn was born, they, they heard a heart murmur. So if you're not familiar with what that is, that means uh, a little hole in Brooklyn's heart. And we had to see a cardiologist whenever she was when she was first born. So I said, "Hey, could you could you just check up on that?" And when, when they listened to it, they found that she does have, still have a heart murmur. So she has a little hole in her heart, and we're going to follow up with a specialist. So if you pray, if you pray for us, they said, in all likelihood, it's it's nothing. And um, so we're not expecting, like we're not worried about it. Um, so I didn't say that to like make some of your faces was like the parents were like, you got a little nervous. Like we're not nervous about it. We're expecting everything to just be normal. Uh, but whenever they found that murmur and they found that hole in her heart, they started asking a bunch of questions. They said, we want to we want to get all the records from the cardiologist that you saw. We want to know um, what what was up with that. We think you should see a specialist again. And then they started asking me all these questions about our family history. They said, do you have any any grandparents? Do you have any uh, do you have family members in in her family tree, in her family line that have heart murmurs? And the idea with that is that to figure out what's going on with us, and if you've been to a doctor's office where you had to fill out the questionnaire, they go through your history because they say, hey, if you have something in your family history, then there's an increased likelihood that you have the problem or that you could have the problem too. And today we have been walking through and we're walking through Jesus's family history, not to see what's wrong with him. Uh, what we're going to see is this is a, Jesus's, the problems in Jesus's family tree is common to us all. And thankfully, it doesn't stop there. You know, if, you have, if you're worried about a problem in your family history, uh, a, a medical problem in your family history, then that could be an indicator for you. But Jesus, in Jesus' family tree, he fixes all of it. And that's what we're going to see today. Today, what we're going to see is how Jesus redeems even our histories, how Jesus redeems our situations, how Jesus redeems our struggles and even our sinfulness for his honor and for his glory. And that's what we see in the life of these people, Judah and Tamar and Pharaoh. Last week, we, were, we saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were the founders. They were the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. It started off with this little family, and last week we saw that they were not perfect people. Uh, Abraham struggled with faith sometimes. Remember last week we talked about how he, whenever he went into different towns, he said to his wife Sarah, hey, you're beautiful, people will want to marry you, let's pretend like we're siblings. So that way somebody can marry you if they want to, and I won't get in trouble. Uh, which to me, if I said that to my wife, I would get in trouble. And then we talked about Isaac and some of the problems that he had, and then we saw Jacob, and Jacob was struck all of the problems with Jacob and his deceitfulness and uh, his, his problems with his marriages. And that's what we saw last week. And then we continue with the story with Jacob and his sons and his family. And if you thought that last week was messed up, we are in for a wild ride today. Here's where the story picks up. You can read about it in Genesis 37. And specifically, most of the message is going to come from Genesis 38. But for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of those verses because it is a long chapter. I'm going to tell you the story, and you can read about it later in Genesis 38. Genesis 37, we're introduced to Jacob and his sons. Jacob has 12 sons. That, is, that blows my mind because I'm overwhelmed with three. Uh, but Jacob has 12 sons, and they don't get along very well. Specifically... Kid number 11. 
Uh, the 11th son, his name is Joseph. And immediately when he's introduced, he is surrounded by trouble. He's surrounded by trouble. And the reason why is because Joseph is Jacob's favorite. Jacob didn't learn the lessons from his dad. Uh, and his dad played favorites, and now Jacob is playing favorites. And Joseph is Jacob's favorite son of the 12. And everyone's got a problem with that. And, and whenever we see that the, what the Bible tells us about Jacob's favoritism is not that it was hidden. For example, in my family, with my parents, we give my mom a hard time about my brother Jason. We say that Jason, I believe, like, it's true. And mom, when you see this letter, we all know it's true. Uh, but uh, Jason is my mother's favorite. It's just, we, we, all recognize, we all recognize that. And to make matters worse, the reason why we know this is not only does she act kind of like he's a favorite, but one time in, like in, uh, if I were, it was a group text, I think, um, my mother called my brother Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> by mistake. Like, literally, she's talking to him and she goes, okay, bye, Jesus. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, Jason does not compare. Uh, Jason does not compare. So they're the favorite. And then we all know that my sister Sarah is my dad's favorite. And that's just the way that it goes. And of course, my parents would deny it. Jacob didn't deny it at all. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And to show his favoritism, Jacob gives Joseph a, a coat of many colors. He gives them this, this really nice designer jacket. That, I mean, you could have just put it like a letterman jacket, like dad's favorite right here. He gave, he gave Jacob this. He gave, he gave Joseph this, uh, this jacket and not for anybody else. And everyone else, all the other brothers, they got pretty upset about it. They were all pretty angry about it. On top of that, the way that they viewed him based on some run-ins that they had had in the past was they viewed Joseph as a snitch. Uh, they were off they were off getting themselves into trouble, and Joseph comes back and tells Dad, hey, the, uh, the other brothers, they're messing around. They're doing these different things. So obviously that doesn't make you the favorite with the brothers. So he was Dad's favorite, just not the brother's favorite. And then it gets even worse. And, and pardon my imagination for a moment, but the Bible tells us that Joseph told them about some dreams. And this is kind of the way it plays out in my head. They're all sitting around at dinner. They're all gathered together at the family table. Joseph is sitting there and Joseph's, and they ask Joseph, well, Joseph, how was your day today? Hey, hey guys, I had a good day today. But really what I want to tell you about is I want to tell you about my dream. You see, I had this dream, and, and you know, I really think that there's something to it. I like, I believe that this came, this dream came from God, and there's something to it. So here's here's the way that the dream happened, guys. So we're out in this field, and we're gathering together our sheaves, our our, our grain, or or you could say we're baling hay, the way that we would do it uh, growing up. And whenever, sorry. Uh, so and while we're gathering our sheaves, while we're gathering our grain, all of a sudden, like this amazing thing happened all of your sheaves started bowing down in service to my sheaf. Uh, all of yours started bowing down because, because mine was greater and they started serving. You can imagine how that must have made the brothers feel. So Joseph, you're saying that, that, that this is, you think that this is from God? Well, what are you saying? Or do you think we're going to bow down to you? You're number 11 in the family. You're at the bottom of the totem pole and you think that we're going we're gonna to bow down to you. And then he continues and said, but, but I had another dream. I had a dream that, that the sun and the moon and its 11 stars bowed down to my star. And all of the brothers are absolutely furious. 
So here's what they do later in the chapter. Like you don't even get half a chapter in, but before the brothers are planning on murdering Joseph. They're off on a trip. Uh, Joseph is sent by his dad to go check on the brothers and see how they're doing. And when he's coming to see them, like they see him off in the distance, they say, hey, he's coming this way. We can get away with it. Let's just kill him right here, right now. Well, because of the influence of one of the brothers, they decide not to kill Joseph. Instead, this is so much better. They sell him into slavery. He goes off. He's sold into slavery in Egypt. They take his coat, and in, and in anger and bitterness, they, they dip it in blood. and They go back to their dad and say, hey, Joseph must have been eaten by a wild animal. You'll never see him again. Jacob he's, has just lost his favorite son. He's lost his son, which for anyone, that would be extremely overwhelming. But then he loses his favorite. And he spends really the next decade and a half grieving nonstop for the loss of his son. Can you imagine if you were one of those 11 brothers, what that would be like every day going for breakfast and seeing your dad just weeping and despondent and in pain, knowing that you caused it? Well, it must have been too much for one of the brothers, the brother named Judah, because the Bible tells us in Genesis 38 that Judah leaves home. Judah leaves the family. He goes off on his own. And he kind of, he kind of starts his life over. And that's where we really get into the fam- this part of the family with Judah and Perez and Tamar. Because Judah leaves the family. He starts life on his own. And he gets married. And he starts having kids. And he has three sons. His first son's name is, you ready for this? His first son's name is Ur. I don't think that's going to show up on anybody's, uh, like, any top baby names list. And if you're single and have, like, dreams of having kids someday, let me just give you this advice. Don't name your kid Ur. So the, the kid's name is, the first one's name is Ur, and then the second one's name is Onan, which, I don't know, I feel like we could take a vote over which one is the worst. Uh, but I feel like Onan is a little bit better, just my personal opinion. So there's Ur, there's Onan, and then the third son is named Sheila. Sheila. I feel like he would have got bullied. They like, hey, they named you Sheila. Why didn't they call you Gila? Sorry. I just gotta don't let me say any more dad jokes, okay? So but there's there's Ur, there's Onan, there's Sheila. And then the story continues and tells us that Ur gets married to a woman named Tamar. He's mentioned he marries Tamar, and immediately we don't know what he did or what his life was like, but the Bible tells us that he was so wicked. And it so angered the Lord that the Lord uh, that the Lord killed him because of his wickedness. So we don't know what what Ur's life was like, but we the Bible just says he was so wicked and angered and displeased the Lord, so he killed him. And then in their culture, whenever someone died, if a man was married and he died, then the widow the widow was the then the 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 deceased man's brother was supposed to marry the widow. And have a son with her in the name of the deceased brother. Now I understand that that's that's weird, right? Like it's not it's not our culture. It's not the way that we do things. There is a little bit of logic for it, and I'm I'm not saying that I, you know, to me that's weird. But I do want to share with you the logic real fast, um, and and we're going somewhere with this. But the logic is is today, let's say for me and my wife and my kids, if I were to pass away, then I have some measures in place. Specifically, I have life insurance. Uh, I have life insurance so that if I were to pass away suddenly, then my wife and my kids would be taken care of. 
And then beyond that, even if I didn't have life insurance, we live in a culture where uh, where women can work, and I understand that it's, it's just all like finding jobs and those kinds of things are very difficult, but we all have ways and means of providing for ourselves here in our culture, in our context. 4,000 years ago, that wasn't the case. So this was kind of like their life insurance plan was for the brother, the deceased man's brother, to marry the wife and have a son so that the widow is taken care of. So, so the job here, what's happening in Genesis 38 is Ur has died, and now it's Onan's job to, 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 to take care of Tamar. So he's supposed to marry her, uh, have a kid with her, and take care of her. That's the job. But that's not exactly what Onan does. And, and I'm going to kind of go over it a little bit, um, but this is one of the more graphic uh, sections of Scripture in the whole Bible, but we just walk through verse by verse, so I want to share it. So we need to, we need to walk through this. Um, but the Bible tells us that Onan, he takes Tamar, he gets ready to get married, he takes her in to marry her, and in physical intimacy, what the Bible tells us is that he takes precautions to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. Um, so, and we'll, we'll leave it that way, that he makes sure that he doesn't get her pregnant. And that angers the Lord, and then Onan dies. Now, this is important, and here's the reason why. Because whenever we read this, whenever you read it, if you read Genesis 38, the question is, all right, he practiced contraceptive methods. What is the problem with it? And I've heard a lot of crazy teaching on what that verse, like what the moral of the story there is. Uh, but here's what's, here's what's going on. Imagine with me for a moment, that's the, that's the rules of the day. All right, so I have a, I have a sister-in-law, um, and I love her. Her name's Erin, she's awesome. She's uh, been part, we've been family for over seven years. On top of that, my Adriana's sister is married to my brother. So we're two brothers who married two sisters. So we, we four are really close. I love my sister Erin. She's, like she's like a sister to me. I never think of her in terms like, oh, hey, you know what? I think I would like to marry my sister-in-law Erin. I never, I never think of her in terms like that because she's family. She's, she's a sibling to me. So with the context of this, here's what's going on. Tamar has just lost her husband, is grieving the loss of her husband. And now because in order for her to be taken care of, now she has to marry her brother-in-law to be taken care of. So even though you're getting married, I can't imagine that you all of a sudden flip a switch and say, oh, now I'm gonna start looking at this person that I've looked at as a brother, now I'm gonna start looking at him as a husband. But what Onan does is he takes her, he's physically intimate, but then he's not actually taking care, taking care of her. Because in this moment, what Tamar finds out is that he's not here to take care of me. He's here to use me. He's not, he's not here to make sure that I'm taken care of. He's here to just get his, his wants met. And in this moment, what happens is Onan sexually takes advantage of Tamar for his own purposes. Instead of treating her like a person, he treats her like an object. And here's where this is really important for the people of God, from a Christian, from a Christian ethic. Whenever it comes to the views of sex and sexuality today, what our culture says is as long as it's between um, consenting adults, then you go for it. Like as long as it's consenting adults, 
you do it. That, that's the ethic of today. The ethic of today, I found out that, that, that two-thirds of people today view pornography as morally okay. But here's what I found, and I think you have it in your worship guide, an article if you want to read more on the danger of just casual sex and the danger of pornography is what happens in our brains and in our minds is that we begin whenever we engage in just casual sex and whenever we engage in pornography, what happens is we stop looking at women in particular as people, we begin to look at them as objects. And what's happening here in the text is that this man is viewing this woman as just an object to be used. And what's happening where where we're going in our society with just sex is just an, an animalistic act and pornography is just something for you to get your own pleasure and enjoyment out of what's happening to our brains and to our minds is that we're looking at people not as people made in the image of God, but we're looking at everyone as, a, as an object for my own gratification. In fact, the science even backs that up by, by showing this, that people who look at pornography and look at, at object, like whenever, whenever a person looks at pornography, the part of their brain that lights up is the same part of their brain that lights up when they look at a camera. It's a, that's what's happening in our brains. To top it all off, uh, to even add to that, um, and it says it in the study that you can read, you can read the whole study for yourself if you're interested in it, is that people who just engage in casual sex and engage in pornography, um, they, they have a lot less uh, satisfaction and, they, and a lot less, they just, it's a lot worse for them. So whenever we get to the New Testament, the Bible gives a sexual ethic of a man and a woman in marriage. That's not for our detriment, and it's not to enslave us, and it's not to, to, to just beat us down with one ethic. Like, that's actually the best ethic for the world. And you know what? The world's going to do what the world's going to do, but for those of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who believe his word, then we should be people who are faithful to look at every person as a person made in the image of God and not looking at myself at, hey, you know what? I'm going to look at sex as just a means to satisfy myself. So that's what Onan does, and the Lord kills Onan because of his abuse of Tamar. And then after he dies, then it's the responsibility of the it's next man up. Uh, it's the next man up, which in this case is Sheila. Sheila is supposed to marry uh, Tamar, and Judah, you know, Judah gets a little bit nervous. Judah tells Tamar, Judah has just lost two of his sons, and both of them just so happen to be married to the same woman. Uh, so it's, hey, you know what, what's going to happen to my third son if he marries her too? So Judah tells Tamar, hey, you know what, you just, you wait a little bit, let, let Sheila grow up a little bit, and then he'll marry you and he'll take care of you. It quickly becomes obvious that Sheila is not going to be given to Tamar to marry. So Tamar decides to, uh, decides to work out her own solution. Uh, in the process of this time, Judah has lost his wife and he's going off on a work trip. Tamar hears about it, so what she does is she goes ahead to the next town. She disguises herself as a prostitute. She picks up Judah, and they have a relationship together, and she gets pregnant. So I got through that as fast as I could. All right, so they have, she gets, she gets pregnant. Judah thinks that he's with a prostitute. He's actually with his daughter-in-law. And then, I told you that this was going to get more messed up than last week. Uh, so, but then, a couple of months later, everyone finds out that Tamar is indeed pregnant. And she's pregnant, the, the word gets around, like it always does, uh, the word gets around that Tamar got pregnant by being a prostitute. 
So Judah gets really angry, and we have a really good job. We, we do a really good job of being hypocrites, don't we? Judah gets angry at Tamar for being for for being a prostitute. So he prosecutes her, and the means of that meant death for Tamar. So Tamar goes to Judah before she's ready to be executed, and she gives him the things that he gave for payment, and she says, hey, this is the man who got me pregnant, and he finds out that it was him. And he finds out he's, he finds out, Judah finds out that he's the dad. He, he repents. He says to Tamar, you're more righteous than I am. Um, I was hypocritical and all of those things. That's the end of their relationship. But, but Tamar has two sons from that relationship. And the two sons' names are Therese and Zerah. And in Genesis 38, that's where the story ends. And in Genesis 38 is this weird little story tucked into the middle of the bigger story of Genesis that talks about this encounter and this moment. And we can look at it and we'll say, Man, that's that's a that's a messed up story, and I like I acknowledge like this is not my favorite message. This is not my favorite story to go through in the Bible and share with you. But here's why it's so extremely important. Here's why it's important because in Genesis 38, while it seems that that's where the story ends, it is far, far from over. You see, it says that Judah had Pharaohs and Sarah with Tamar. And we don't pick up on that story again until Ruth chapter 4. Until Ruth chapter 4. And we actually have it up on the screen. I'd like to encourage you to look at that with me. But in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 4, it says this. So, and I don't want to spoil this because we're talking about Boaz and Ruth's story, which is a way better story as far as enjoyability goes. Uh, but Ruth's, Ruth's story is at the very end, there are these people that gather around this man, Boaz and Ruth. And they are getting married. And they were getting ready to start a family. And in verse number 11, it says that all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. We're like, we're witnesses of this, of this marriage. And then the elders of this town in Bethlehem, they pray this prayer for Boaz and Ruth. And here's what they say. The Lord make this woman that is to come into, into your house like Rachel and like Leah. So they're praying this prayer of blessing that shall, that they'll get to have a great, healthy family. Um, which too did build the house of Israel and do that worthily in effort to be famous in Bethlehem. And then verse 12, this is, this is big and important and you're going to love this. Verse 12, it says, and let thy house be like the house of Therese, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So in Ruth, when the story picks up at the, at, in Ruth, Ruth and Boaz, they're getting married. All of the elders, all the leaders in town are praying this prayer of blessing, which was a big deal in their culture. And here's what they pray. They pray, may your family, may your house be blessed like the Lord blessed Pharaohs. Hey, you know what? We love you guys. We're thankful for what God's doing in your life. We're excited about it. And we're praying for blessing. And, and may you guys have a house as wonderful May you have a house that it's as blessed by God as the Lord blessed Pharaohs. So while Genesis 38 tells a very messed up story, we find out that it's not the end of the story. 
It's not the end of the story for Perez. It's not the end of the story for Judah, because in Genesis 38, all of that mess happens. In Genesis 39, Judah goes back home. And by the way, in, the, in, in this, and we don't really have time to stay here too long, but in this time, when Joseph, the, the, the annoying little brother that was the favorite, um, at the end of his story, he goes from being a slave to being the ruler of Egypt. And everyone comes down and bows before him like he dreamed. And Judah is, the per, is a person who is instrumental in reuniting Joseph and his family. Judah goes back home, and he goes back to his brothers, and he goes back to his dad. God redeems Judah's story. And Judah becomes the house. Judah becomes the tribe through which Jesus arrives. And Pharaoh, he turns from this illegitimate son, this son that, that you would think just from reading Genesis 38, hey, let's forget about this story as fast as we can. But the people in Bethlehem didn't forget this story, but they didn't view it as something that was ugly. They viewed this story, they viewed the story of Pharaoh as something beautiful because God had taken something that was broken and God had taken something that was messed up and God had taken something that was ugly and he turned Pharaoh around somehow, some way. He turned Pharaoh's family into something that everyone wanted to have. Everyone wanted to be like the house of Pharaoh's. Everyone wanted to be like the family of Pharaoh's. And when you read Genesis 38, you think, how could that be? Who would want to have the family story that Pharaoh's has? Yet in Ruth 4, everyone wants to have the story that Pharaoh's has. And then whenever we look at Tamar, Tamar who went through all of that pain of being abused early in Genesis 38, of playing as a prostitute at the end of Genesis 38, here's the last Thing that we read about Tamar. We don't read about Tamar as a prostitute. We don't read about Tamar as someone who was hurt. We don't read about Tamar as someone who was in pain. We read about Tamar, who was an ancestor, who was connected to, who was part of the family line to bring in our Messiah, to bring in our deliverer. So whenever we look at the story of Judah, and when we look at the story of Tamar, and we look at the story of Pharaoh, what we see is that there is this big, huge, ugly mess, and somehow, some way, God redeems it, and God restores it, and God transforms it into something beautiful, and something wonderful, and something desirable, and that's not something that you can accomplish, and that's not something that I can accomplish, that's something that only God can accomplish, and the ultimate fulfillment of all of that redemption is we see it in the cross because while you and I are broken Jesus comes to redeem and restore while we have a family tree that we say you know what my past if I could get rid of my past I would but the Bible tells us that God works all things together for good to those that love God to those who are called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son here is what God does with bad situations and here's what God does with bad family stories and here's what God God does with pain in our past and here's what God does with our sin he takes it and he takes all of the ugly broken pieces that we make and he redeems it and he restores it and he restores it and he transforms it to something that it was even better than it ever could have been apart from him that's what God does that's what God does to close, I want to share with you something that I found this week that I just feel like illustrates this beautifully. It is something called, and I don't, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's called Kintsugi. It's called Kintsugi. It's Japanese, and I have this picture up here of um, pottery made using the process of Kintsugi. So, in the 1500s, there was this 
there was this man and he had this family heirloom. It was like this, uh, it was this pottery. It was like these teacups or something, something like that. And while he was out in, in war, he dropped this valuable and precious pottery to him. So he drops it, it all shatters. And he doesn't know what to do with it. So he gets all of this, he gets all of this pottery that's really valuable to him, and he gets it sent off um, to be restored. And that was the founding, that was the beginning of this process called Kintsugi. What it is is people take people that have these broken, these broken pieces, these broken cups, these broken bowls, they get all the shattered pieces and they start putting them back together. But they don't just put them back together with glue, they put them back together with gold. And they put them back together with silver, and they put it together back together with platinum. And they, they use all of these different, very valuable, precious metals along with glue to put all of the pieces back together. And that happened, that's the beginning of this kintsugi, but what it turned into was at first it was a mess and it was a mistake, but then it turned into art. Because everyone started looking at this these pieces that were put together with the gold in it, and they said, hey, you know what? I want stuff like that. I, I, want, I don't want plain, who wants a plain cup whenever you can have this? And what it turned into is it turned into this art where people actually break the pieces on purpose so that they can fill it with gold and with silver and make this beautiful work of art. There was, in the early story, the origins of this kintsugi, it actually turned into a little bit of a, um, a little bit of drama because there was this person who actually turned it into a business. He would actually break the pieces himself and then he would turn around, repair it with kintsugi and then sell it for a lot more than what he originally paid for it because everyone, want, everyone wanted it. And here's where it's really big and here's what I want to share with you. What made it valuable was not that it was broken and that it was put back together. What made it valuable was that it was broken and it was put together with something special. And here's what the gospel does. The gospel takes all of our broken pieces, and because God is involved in the process, because we get Jesus, because we get Jesus, he puts the pieces back together where it is more beautiful and more valuable than it was before. My friend, that is the work that God can do in your life. So whenever I look at this story and I hear about this redemption, how do like what is how does this apply to my life? And that's kind of how we're walking through the series. There's a story, there's what God does, and then what does this mean for my everyday life? First of all, if I understand that the gospel takes me as a broken person and he can take all of my brokenness, whatever that is, first and foremost, sin, but he takes my broken uh, relationships, he takes my broken circumstances, he takes my, my brokenness, my sin, my pride, my ugliness, and whenever it's all broken down, he gives me himself through the person of Jesus. What does that mean for people who understand this gospel, this good news? Well, first of all, it makes us people of hope. It makes us people of hope. Because if I understand that God takes broken things and he puts them back together better, then I can look at my life today. I can look at what I'm going through today and see that, you know what? I may be in a broken season, but I have a God who puts things back together. I have a broken whatever. You fill that in in your life, and God puts it back together. It makes us people of hope. 
Yeah. It makes us people of hope because God is going to restore it. And it also makes us people of change and transformation. Because God loves you and he accepts you just as you are. Broken pieces and all. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way. He accepts you as you are, but the process is, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. So for us who are people of the gospel, people who love God, people of hope, then I also understand God, if you're going to take my brokenness and you're going to put it all together, that can be a painful process sometimes. But God, I'm committed to the transformation that you want to do in my life. The Bible says in a few, and the Bible says in, I believe it's Philippians 2, 12 and 13, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We take the change that God's doing in us and, and we we do we work at it. Work out your own salvation. But then it says, because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Listen, God is going to transform your life, but he's not going to force you. So we have to submit to and we have to surrender to the change. And sometimes it's painful and sometimes it hurts and it's not always pleasant, but God is committed to that process if you will surrender to it. That's what God does. God takes broken pieces and he makes art out of it. He'll take your broken life and he'll transform it into something beautiful if you'll simply surrender to him. That's what we see with Judah and Tamar and Pharaoh. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness to us and your grace in our lives. And thank you that you take brokenness and you make art out of it. And Lord, I pray that you would make us people of hope. I know that there are people today who are hurting for loved ones and broken relationships. There are people who are broken over their sin and their struggle with it. There's people who are struggling with the brokenness, the brokenness of things going on in their lives. But Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and help us to see and recognize that even whenever we can't see it or feel it, you are working. And help us to be people of hope and faith that trust in that process. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to remember that your intention for us was never to make us like we were before. Your purpose was to give us yourself and in that transformation that's something so much better and more beautiful. And we know that there's fire that comes with that restoration process. But Lord, I ask that you would help us um, to submit to the change in the work that you do in our lives. We love you, Lord. And I ask that you would change us. And may we see, may we look back whenever we get uh, a year down the road, five years down the road, ten years down the road, and we look back and see what you've done. We'll just rejoice and celebrate how you took broken pieces and you made art. In Jesus' name. If you would please keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. For just a moment, we're going to take some time. We're going to take some time to respond uh, to the message. And we just ask everybody to close their eyes so that everyone has privacy to respond. However, God works on your heart to respond. Where this applies, first and foremost, is in the area of salvation. In the area of being born again. Maybe you're a person here today and you say, Pastor David, you talk about Jesus redeeming my brokenness and redeeming my sin and all of those kinds of things. And I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't. I don't know that he's my savior. I, I don't know. Any, but I want to know more about that. I would like to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today 
And I would like to know more about that. Would you please pray for me? Would you raise your hand if that's you? If that's you and you say, Pastor David, I want to know more about beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you just raise your hand and I pray for you? Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. You can put it down. I'll be sure to pray for you. I would love to show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior. And then for those of us who know Christ, for those of us who know Christ, what is an area of brokenness in your life that you need to give, that you need to give to God? And just trust Him to make the brokenness whole. And say, Pastor, there's an area in my life and I can think of it right now. I need to give that to God so that He can transform it. And I just, I need to give that up to him. And I, I want to give that to him. Would you just raise your hand and you say, that's me. That's me. I know that there's a situation in my life. I know that there's some brokenness. I want to see God transform it. Thank you. Hands all over the room. Hands all over the room. God does that. God will do that. We just have to be people who surrender that to him. And then whenever it comes to transformation, maybe God's working on your heart. Maybe there's an area that you need to change. Maybe there's some sin that God needs to, that God needs to get out of your life. And whatever that may be, let me challenge you to just respond with surrender to the transforming process that he, that he wants to work for his honor and glory. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll sing our final song of the service. Father, 